All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. Just to catch us up to where we are, because I think that's important. Again, we've been looking at, we looked at Matthew 18, uh, and then we've been looking at the book of Titus so that we would understand how the life of the church truly is for the life of the world. And the impact that how we live matters, how we treat one another matters, right? So for us to say that uh, we are a a people who love or that God is love and any of those types of things, it's got to manifest itself in us, right? You can't say one thing with your mouth and do one thing with your deeds because everybody sees that. And we're not getting away with it near as good as we think we are. And so it's important for us to recognize that 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 difference is not going to be made up by your effort. You're not going to, in your Herculean strength, make the world see God's love. Right? You get that. Before we go any further, let's at least get that down pat. You, You... by your good works, you, by your deeds, cannot change someone's heart or mind about the gospel. Only the Spirit can do that. Now, what your deeds can do is either affirm or deny what they already suspect about the gospel. So, you, so our opportunity is to be involved in what the Spirit is going to do. Because remember what Jesus said, if you remain silent, what's going to cry out? Everything in creation will cry out in your place, and we won't have the benefit of being able to participate in the redemptive work that God is doing in this world. See, that's the beauty of this, is that's why it's not burdensome for us to have some sort of instruction as to how then we should live. Because God has promised what He has set in motion will come to pass. Now, the question is do you get to be a part of it, enjoy it, or will you stand on the sidelines? And be left in sorrow in some sense for not being able to participate in the good things that God is doing in this world. It's not that we have to, it's that we get to. Let me make that distinction again. What God calls us to do in obedience, once we are in Christ, it is not that you have to do anything, it's that you get to, right? And that's really important because if you make it have to, guess what's going to happen? You will wind up in a heap destroyed by this, and your faith will be shaken, and it'll wreck you out at some point in time, right? Because we're just not strong enough. We need grace. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about grace, and I think it's really important that we have a, a firm understanding of grace because there's a lot of different kind of ideas about grace going around. But as far as this is concerned, I want us to make sure before you hear me say anything about what, how it is you're supposed to live, because you're, you're going to hear the, the main idea is sound doctrine must be lived out in all phases of our lives. And some of you are going to hear that as, oh my God, that means I've got to straighten up. That means I've got to watch I got to watch the music I listen to. That means I've got to I've got to be careful of what I post on Facebook. You probably should do that anyway, but but not because of God. Uh, but anyway, so so you you're gonna tighten up. You're gonna feel like all. Anytime you hear the word all, let's be honest, we tighten up, right? Because it feels so absolute and all encompassing. Remember, it's not that you have to. It's that you get to. And Jesus has made it possible for all of your life to have meaning. That's the all. All can have meaning 
instead of all being burdensome. So you get the pleasure of how you live where you live, how you work where you work, how you parent, and all the things that you do, all of that can have meaning from the most banal and mundane to the most exciting. That's really critical for us to remember because I think that we end up reducing it to everything being banal and mundane and meaningless because of our efforts. Is that, is that qualification enough? Do I need to die another thousand of those? So I want to make that really, really clear. And I want to say, critical to this passage is context, context, context. Um, and, and so he's going to say some things to them because of the uniqueness of the Cretan context that are going to make you, if you're not careful, you're going to think I'm the Cretan because I'm quoting Paul the Cretan who thinks young women ought to just stay home pregnant and do stuff that, you know, it just seems to be backwards. That's not what this is going to be about. He's going to be addressing some very specific issues in their culture, and we're going to try to bridge the gap and say some practical things about how, how would this look for us in our culture, right? What we're going to find is there's really not a ton of difference because the Cretan culture is not really that different ultimately, than where we are today. As the author of Ecclesiastes tells us, there's nothing new under the sun. We just keep repeating stuff. You know, it's interesting to me, I've been reading uh, David McCullough's book John, on John Adams, and John Adams, from the very get-go, uh, says that, that government is a catacombs for which there is no map or key. You know what that means? It basically is a riddle without an answer. Now, that was when it started, Right? So he goes away for 10 years um, and, and spends time serving overseas and comes back. And here was, his, here was his observation of America in 1788. Liberty has given way to, to luxury and um, patriotism to avarice, which led Benjamin Rush, a friend of his, to say, the trajectory of man is such that we will need a tyrannical monarch to rule us someday. That was not a good statement, by the way. So I, I use that as illustration to say, there's not a lot new actually under the sun. So the things that we're dealing with in Crete are similar to things that we deal with ideologically even today. So you got to keep that in perspective as we walk through this. Because I know some of you are already like, who, who got to determine that older is 40 and up? Why don't we take a vote on that? Like you're already tight. You're already flipped out. That's okay. I should have told you. It's like plus or minus 20. It's fine. If you want to, we can swing it. I don't, I don't mind. All right, so... As we start, here's the opening question. What, what has a bigger impact on what people think of you? What you do or what you say? Which is it? It's probably what you do, but both have to be in phase, right? It's both what you do and what you say, right? Both, if, if they're out of phase, it really stands out. Like if you say, hey, I'm a Christian, but you hate your brother, what does John say you are not? You're not a Christian because you can't do both, right? It's, 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 it's just one of those things that's not just. Why, why is hypocrisy, and we've talked about this before, why is hypocrisy such a big deal for the church? Why is it not a big deal for the highway? Why don't some of you not drive on the highway because that's where hypocrites are? Nobody obeys the speed limit. Nobody uses a blinker. Nobody is nice. You have people like, like using that, that uh, HOV lane. Uh, and they're not supposed to be in there? Why do you not say, why do those who would say, I don't go to church because of hypocrites, why don't we say, I don't, I'm going to drive on the freeway? Because there is a significant difference in what we say and what we commit to, and it has a significant impact on the life of the world, unique to anything and everything else. 
So it's very important that sound doctrine must be lived out in all phases of our lives for the life of the church's witness for the life of the world. Listen to what Patrick Fairbairn says about this. He says, Christianity is primarily, indeed, a doctrine, but only that it may be in the true sense a life. And the two can never be kept apart from each other in the public teaching of the church without imminent peril to both. What did he just say? He just said that doctrine that is not lived out destroys both. It destroys the church and it destroys its witness in the world. That's just fact. So Paul is transitioning from addressing the false teachers. If you remember from last week, he described them and how they were ultimately antithetical to what an elder ought to be and antithetical to the very mission that he had come to do. Remember, his whole goal was that those who had faith and knowledge of the truth would actually live it out in terms of godliness. Now, remember how we define godliness because this is critical. This is a word that can trip us up and make us tight if we're not careful because some people hear godliness and they think perfection. Is that what godliness means? No, not in any way, shape, or form. To be godly means to care about the things that God cares about. And God cares more about redemption than he cares about anything else, right? He saved us in what condition? As enemies. That's critical. You've got to understand, he loves broken people, and perfection is not the front-end goal. He'll take care of that part. He doesn't require it of us because he gives it to us as gift in the person and work of Christ. So why do we keep trying to go back and say, no, 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 thank you for the gift, but I want to try to earn this. I want to try to be bigger than Jesus. Don't do that. Don't let the devil whisper low to you and take away these beautiful terms. No, godliness is about us caring about redemption, which means you're going to love people in messy ways, in messy people, and you're going to get it wrong sometimes, which is why we all still need Jesus between the now and the not yet. And so this is what Paul wants. He doesn't, he's not calling for perfection of us. What he's calling for is for us to be consistent with the truth of the gospel, which is to love our enemies. Because remember last week, what was the goal for the false teachers? Why do we confront them? To run them off, right? Get them out of our face. They make us sick. No, to say, come back and be part of the family. Eat false teachers. And yet, what is the testimony of the church toward most false teachers? There's the door, and don't you come back. Instead of calling them again to sound doctrine and trusting the word and the spirit to be at work in them, just as he was in us when we were false teachers, which we all have been at some level, not in the purest sense. So he transitions from false teachers to talk about how then should we live. Now, again, let me make a note about the environment. One of the things that was interesting about Crete is that um, women's liberation had sprung up on the Isle of Crete. And in the, the way that it, it went was usually older women's focus was to host these raucous parties at their house and invite these purveyors of philosophy, these false teachers, into their home and invite a bunch of people to get together, and this false teacher would hold court for pay. And this was kind of an upper-crust, high-society type of thing to do. Um, and so, so one of the reasons he's going to step in and speak specifically to older women and use some of the examples that he has is because this had become the norm, and it was attracting and drawing people away. So if they're hosting these parties, 
and having all these people in their house and these great big drunken festivals and, and just people coming in and out, how well can they love their family? It makes it really, really hard to have your attention that divided, especially when you're making yourself the goal, your knowledge, your status. Now, also notice that he doesn't say much to men in this passage here in just a moment that, about family. Now, why? Because he'd already talked to him about family under the heading of elders. Remember that before a man can even be considered to be an elder, what must he be? Faithful to his wife and missional to his children. It means he must love his family well. He's already talked to them, both young and old. And now he's coming around and saying something more to the men and something to the women at this juncture. So keep that in mind as we walk through this, recognizing the specificity of the context and why he's addressing the things he's addressing um, as to where they are. So if you would turn to the text, we'll read Titus 2, 1 through 6. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Let's walk through this. Now he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now he hasn't, exact, he hasn't told us yet really what sound doctrine is. That actually comes next week. But what we know sound doctrine to be is that which is consistent with the gospel. The gospel being salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone. And salvation meaning justification, sanctification, and glorification, the whole picture. That is sound doctrine. Now he's telling him, teach that in practicality. Teach that in your local context. He's actually saying to Titus, contextualize. Give it flesh and blood for where you are. Now let me give you some examples, and that's what he's going to say to him next. So he starts with the older men. And he starts with the older men, even though he's addressed some of this stuff in the elder, he's reiterating, and notice that all of the things he says has an impact on their, the older man's ability to disciple. In fact, it's going to be the same for the older women. Their behavior, their living out of sound doctrine is supposed to be with the idea of being able to disciple those who are younger in mind. So let me say to all of the older men in here, 40 plus or minus 20 and up... <laughs> However you want to work that out math-wise, it's fine. You need to be thinking about how, how you live and how that affects discipleship, right? And, and where does that happen first and foremost according to what it means to be an elder? Where's that impact first? At home, in your family, right? And there are ages and stages of your life where that's going to be all you can handle. Did you, did you hear what I just said? There will be ages and stages of your life based on the sheer number that you have or your abilities or your giftings where that is all you will be able to handle and that is okay. It is. The Lord will provide 
everything that is necessary and needed for the life of the church, for the life of the world, you don't need to be a martyr and you don't need to make your family a martyr. Does that make sense? So part of that is to be sober-minded. Now, what does that mean? To be sober-minded means that you, you are able to think clearly about doctrinal things. You don't run off at the first blog post. You don't run off at the first uh, political ad. You don't spout off every time you get an opportunity and run in these different directions spouting all these other things other than sound doctrine. You are firm in the gospel, sober-minded, able to speak clearly about these things and level-headedly. And then it goes on to say, dignified. Does that mean you should wear a suit? You're on it. You're going to be fine. Uh, Does that mean wear a suit every Sunday? Is that what dignified is? No, that's not what it is. It is about how you carry yourself, though. It is about you showing some, some diplomacy. It is about how you speak to others and about how you handle yourself and about what people know about you and your family. It means that you care about your dignity. You care about what other people think of you in the sense of how it reflects on the glory of God. And then he goes on to say self-controlled, which most oftentimes is a reference to sexuality. So this, in our day and age, I won't go too far down this rabbit trail. Don't get excited. Um, But this would have to do with, do you struggle with pornography? Do you struggle with... Um, do you struggle with lust? Do you struggle in ways that you are not struggling well? Are you giving in too often? So self-controlled means that you're, you're not blown about with every passion that you have. And then sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That is so important. Sound in, in faith. That means, again, that you trust in the promises of God. And that you lean upon the promises of God, the finished work of Christ for all in all. To be sound in love is very, very important. It means that we are cognizant and recognize the redemptive work of God who is love. And we can't love. We don't love on our own. We love because he first loved us, remember? And so as men who are older, which I fall into the category even without the plus and minus, this is really, really important. Because so often, I think as men, we don't, we don't know how to show love and affection. We have let the culture and the world dictate us. We're not gentle. We, we, we don't tell each other that we love each other, and we're, we're kind of sometimes are like, hey, it's uh, so my wife, hey, I, I'll, I, I told you I loved you when we first, first got together, and I'll let you know if it changes. That's not, that's not a good example of that. And so we need to, we need to as men, Push against how the culture says that being loving is being weak. That's not true. It is not true. In fact, if you have daughters, fathers, it is critical, critical that your daughters see from you and hear from you blessing because there's somebody going to come along someday and speak and pronounce love and blessing over her, and it may not be the kind that you would want for her. So it goes on to say steadfastness. That just means not, not changing all the time, that, that they're consistent, that they are there, that they are present, that they are not quick to run. You know, it's interesting. I, I just finished the book Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry, and I had recently read The Memory of Old Jack. For those of you who are familiar with Wendell Berry, both of these books are kind of told from a, a, an imaginary town in Kentucky called Port William and featured largely in both books are older men 
who are speaking about just life and just about, uh, and, and really exemplify a lot of these things. And I, I just was, in preparing for this, after having read those things, just was so moved by this picture of these, these older saintly men um, who evidence all of these things, but also have scars and came to these things because of mistakes they've made, but were healed ultimately, as Wendell Berry says, in Christ. And so what, what a beautiful picture it would be if that were not fiction and it were actually true of us and that our children in this church could speak long into the future of remembering the loving older men who had, um, who had loved them well, who had loved each other well, and had loved Christ well. We are having an impact whether we know it or not. It's worth us thinking about. It's worth us considering and the impact that it's having on our discipleship. Then he turns to the older women. He says, likewise. Likewise. So what is that? Likewise, does that mean that he's now talking to someone less than the older men? Or is he talking to someone on even par? He's talking to someone on even par. He's saying, and likewise, you have an impact too on discipleship. And he says, he says this, he says, you are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. Again, that's the contextual part. He's talking about how the Cretan women are having these parties and they're talking bad about everybody and the, the parties are raucous and they're getting drunk and they're not taking care of their families and they're, they're more concerned with their status. So he's saying, older women in the church, you have an opportunity to stand out against the culture. Is that true for us today? Do we have an opportunity to stand out against the current culture and its views of what women should be, especially older women? Culture oftentimes says, forget your family. It's held you down for too long. It's been the albatross around your neck. And think about how young women coming up in this culture What's the value of children become? Right? There's plenty of stories, especially from my friends in the Northwest. Or if you have a lot of kids in the Northwest, you have people who will say to you, do you not care about your carbon footprint? Do you not care about what you're doing to this world? I mean, it's like they want to turn around and say, all right, well, which one do you want me to kill first? Right? I mean, that's become the value of children. Notice that, the, that, that France, one of the things that's happening to France is because they've progressed so far. Their birth rate is about 1.2, if you know what that is. And their culture will cease to exist by birth rate alone here in the next century. Same is true for Germany as well. Is that progress? Ceasing to exist? Right? So we have a value of children and family that can have an impact on the world. They can say to the world that has currently over 500,000 children in foster care who will age out of that system that nobody wanted, nobody, including us. I know that was harsh, but somebody didn't want, I mean, they're there. They're going to age out. They're too old, almost. There's too, they're too complicated. And yet we, the church, have a wonderful opportunity. What is our, what is our take on abortion? Right? I mean, I saw a TED talk the other day, and I find TED fascinating and maddening at the same time, right? So there was this TED talk about how in utero, children learn. 
And Ted also has TED Talks about why those in utero are not yet human or to be considered persons. How do, you, how, how do we do both? And yet our culture says children are not terribly valuable. No, you are. You're more valuable than your children. Now, is it good to make idols of our children to go the other direction? No, it is not. One of the funny stories, and you can think less of me after I tell you this story. It's okay. But you know how, the, how they, usually when your kids play sports, they, they, they sell you some button with your kid's likeness on it, and you can wear it, right? And I don't know what, I may have been having a heat stroke this day when my daughter came to me, and she said, Daddy, are you, are you going to get one of those buttons and wear it to me on it? I said, why would I do that? Why don't you get a picture of me and your mom and wear that around school? We do more for you than you do for us. Yeah, I apologized, and she went to therapy, and everything's fine. But that's our culture, right? I mean, our culture is so distorted on family and what our roles ought to be. Guess what, guess what we're trying to do to roles, gender roles? We're trying to erase that in toto. We, want, we don't want any distinction at all, which is just crazy to me. The distinctions, I think, are fairly clear. I thought we had that figured out, scientifically even. But apparently we don't. So, so we have, you have, older women, 40 plus or minus 20, you have a tremendous opportunity with how you live to have an impact on the church and discipleship and on the world through your witness. We live in an amazing moment in history where the gospel could shine beautifully through how our older men and our older women live. Notice what it says. He says, and make sure that you are to teach what is good. Now, why didn't he say to the men, you teach what is good? Again, he already did it under elder. Now, does this mean that the teaching of women is an invaluable thing in our church? No, it should be critical. It should be critical. One of the things that we don't do very well as leadership, and I confess this from the front, is we don't, we don't invest in the theological training of our women so they can teach what is good. We relegate them to conferences and other things, and we, don't, we as elders don't invest because we're so afraid if we were to be around a woman, something crazy could happen. And we got to get over that to some extent. We still need to use wisdom, by the way. But at the same time, we need to value this from top down. Then he goes on to say what it is that they are to teach to the younger women. It's to train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working in, at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, and that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, that's the critical piece to the whole puzzle. Do what you do, younger women, so that the word of God may not be reviled. That is the biggest part of that. The rest is contextual, right? This is not a passage that ought to be used for saying, this is why women should not work outside of the home right here. Paul said it. No, what he's saying is don't forsake what the Lord has given you in your home. And remember, a huge part of a man being able to be an elder is hospitality. That means we've got to work together. And so what he's saying is make sure that you remember that your home can be used as a mission station based on your giftings and abilities and context. Is everybody going to use their home in the same way? No, they won't. Everybody's gifted different. And remember, sometimes there are seasons in life where if anybody's going to come to your house, they're going to have to fold laundry to have a place to sit. Is that bad? No, let's call it being community, actually. And some of you kind of took it and was like, heck yeah, let's do this. I'm going to start inviting people over and 
get them to do housework, and I'm going to leave for 30 minutes or an hour and come back when they're done. Um, but no, no, we need to not let hospitality be, be pushed to the side because we're so afraid of what someone may see who knows you're human and you know they're human. And remember, not everybody's called to the same level. It's okay. It's okay. And this idea of being submissive to their own husbands, we in our culture hear that and, ooh, some of you shut down, you're done. You, you, you feel like, oh man, here, we, here, comes, here comes the real Cretan. Cameron the Cretan's coming. Well, he's already said to the husbands, by the way, be submissive to your wives in the elder section and calling them to be faithful to their wives. So this is the same thing that he says in Ephesians before he even gets the submission of wives and husbands. He says, be mutually submissive to one another. This is, we are submitting to the image of God in each other and recognizing the variety of gifts and how together we are made better than separate. Amen? So this is not a call to women to be submissive no matter what. Notice this submission is to only occur as long as it doesn't revile the word of God. So younger women, are you to submit to something that's unbiblical just because your husband says it? No. And if your husband tells you that, come tell one of us and let's talk. Let's get that biblical. Because that is crucial so that there is no oppression. There is no oppression in the gospel. It is not, I said it, therefore you ought to do it. No. It's not how this works. It should always be to build up, lift up for the redemption of God, for the glory of God. So never hear submission as carte blanche for your husband to do as he pleases because the qualifier there is so critical. Then he moves on to young men. And notice he says the least amount to young men. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, why do you think he had the least amount to say to the young men? Well, because most young men can't handle probably more than that. And and the truth of the matter is, think about what was going on in Crete. For the young man, every part of his hedonistic potential was on display. We think that for some reason it's unique that today we have more access to anything than we've ever had in history. That's actually not true. Not true at all. In fact, it is is actually more taboo in some respects in our culture today than it was in Crete. See, part of their religion was to have sex. It's not part of our religion to be able to do as we please, right? So they actually had it worse in some respects. Now, has the internet changed access and those kind of things? Yes. Yes, it has. But I want you to understand that the the call to them is just as strong as it is today. And he's saying to them, use your self-control. Use the means of grace to control your passions because you are a giant chemistry experiment of which testosterone is the largest chemical. And you don't need to ruin yourself before you can even begin so that you can one day be an older man who's sober-minded and and is true in faith and love and all of these things. And so he's also recognizing that it's going to be a struggle. See, sometimes I think that we think that between the now and the not yet, we ought not struggle. No, that's glorification. That's only when Jesus returns does the struggle end, which is why there's so many passages in all of Scripture that call us as Colossians 3 does, to use the means of grace to fight the good fight. If there were no fight, we wouldn't need armor. If there were no fight, we wouldn't need to fight the good fight. But no, 
you're going to struggle. Struggle doesn't mean failure. Struggle means this is really what's going down. And sometimes the struggle evidences that you are actually, in fact, in the redemptive process. Though I can tell you, as a former radical anti-theist, I never struggled. It was never a struggle. I just did what I wanted to. Now, I struggled with the consequences, right? Like jail uh, and other things, right? Those are, I, I struggled then, but I only struggled when I got caught. I never struggled in doing it. So understand that oftentimes the struggle is evidence that the spirit is at work in you. If you didn't care one way or the other, there's no spirit at work. So he's telling them all of these things so that they can have a witness in the world. And, and he's calling them to do it together. They need each other. The older need the younger. Now, this is something that we need to address here briefly before we start the whole small group thing. Because there's a tendency uh, to, to kind of get tangled up in, affinity, should we do affinity groups? Should we do Titus 2 groups? Should we do age and stage? Okay, Yeah. You need all that. Do you need time with people your own age? Yes, you do. You do. Do you need time with people in a similar stage of life as you? Yes, yes, you do. Is it also critically important that you spend time with people who are further along than you? Of the three, that is probably the most important and the most neglected. So hear me. You are going to have to try to make these things happen. And you can say, well, Cameron, maybe if you were more programmatic and we had an old people get together with young people kind of mixer, it'd fix this. Really? That's going to fix it. It's going to make, like, you guys are not going to stand on the edges of the room looking at each other like kids at a dance, right? You need to take seriously the necessity to engage in those who are in different stages of life for you, both forward and back, by the way. So some of you, some of you 35, 40-year-old men need to be investing in some of these 20, 25-year-old men, and you need to get around some of these 55 and 65-year-old men at some point. You know it's a necessity, and as C.S. Lewis would say, all that is important all that is important, and the reason that I know that it's important is because it's actually hard and I don't want to do it. Because my flesh is always at war with it. And we always want somebody to make it easier for us. It's not, relationships are just not easy. They're just not. And they take time and investment. And you try, and you got to be okay with sometimes going, I don't think this one's going to work. And not get mad at each other. And have to find a whole new church to go get mad at somebody else at. So this is an important thing that if, if this church, our church, is going to be a church that lives for the life of the world, this is something we're going to have to get intentional about, and it is not my job to make it happen for you. I know y'all hate hearing that kind of stuff. It's my job to challenge you on it and to encourage you in it and to help you when you get tangled up in it. But it is not my job to make it happen for you because I just, I, we're not doing ChristianMatch.com here in any form or fashion, as it turns out. So listen at what Philip Towner says about this portion of the passage. He, he's a New Testament scholar. He says, respectability in the household is not surrender to secular influence, which is the modern interpretation. 
nor is it clinging to the ordinary in order to protect the church's existence in a hostile climate. So it's, it's not that we are to be a fortress. In fact, the household as the center of society was under attack from converging cultural forces. Its central place in life made it the strategic hill to be taken by the gospel if Christianity was going to prove its redemptive capability in the world. Did you hear what he just said? He said that the, the, the household was the central place in which the world looked to see, does Christianity matter at all? Now, parents, how often do we hear the story of a child that's raised as a Christian, they go away to college, they discover Def Leppard, and I don't know, probably not Def Leppard anymore, but they discover rap music or, I don't know, something, and, and suddenly they're lost. That story gets watch, rinse, repeat too much. Do you know what statistically shows that a child maintains their faith once they go in and through college? One thing. Whether or not that child was catechized, taught the faith, taught sound doctrine in full in a way that can engage the world. It's the one thing that makes a major difference. So if we want to have a say in this world, it begins with how we live out and love our families. For those of you who don't currently have children, it's, also, it's the same as true. You're part of this larger family, right? This is one big family. So if you don't already have enough brothers and sisters, well, here, here's a whole bunch more. And if you already don't think you have enough to worry about, well, here, worry about some more. Here it is, right? And all of its beauty and fullness and terribleness and sorrow and brokenness and goodness, Right? So why does how we live matter? It matters for the life of the world. The thing that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit care most about, it matters for redemption. It matters for discipleship. Let's look back at, now here's the part that's directed at me, and I'll probably spend the least amount of time on it just to protect myself, okay? Verses seven, no, I'm just kidding. Verses seven and eight. And this is important. It's critical that Paul makes it, makes it clear to Titus what it is. What's your role in all this? Because again, even back then, even in Crete, there were tons of things that were going to vie for Titus's time and, and maybe drag Titus away from the very true ministry that he was supposed to have. And it's, it's very true today. He says to him, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Not just you, Titus, but us, all Christians. So he's challenging Titus. He's saying, listen, you've got to practice what you preach. You've got to exemplify what you preach. Now, is he telling him he's got to do it perfect? No. Does Paul do it perfect? Does Peter do it perfect? No. Am I going to do it perfect? Let me guarantee you, no. But there's grace enough for me too. Now, the, the, what really comes in where, this, where it begins to lack dignity, where it begins to lack integrity and sound speech is if I lack humility and I'm unwilling to say, you know what? I was wrong, which I've confessed to you a few times already in my short two years here. There's been several things I've been wrong about. There's been several mistakes I've made. But what I care most about is your flourishing in worship and that God would be glorified. 
That is where the integrity and the dignity truly comes in. Trust me, I feel the weight of that. We as elders should feel the weight of that. And it's very important that we recognize that how we do what we do as the leaders of the church has a significant impact on the life of the church, which has a significant impact on the life of the world. So based on your experience, whose glory ends up being most tarnished whenever a ministry leader goes rogue? Oftentimes, God gets handed the check, right? The world charges God with the offense, and the man's name is long forgotten. So for those of us who are in leadership, we need to recognize the impact that we have. That's why we are worthy of double judgment. I do not take that or say that lightly. And then the last group, again, you've got to think contextually. And some of your Bibles are going to say slaves. For some, it's bond servants. And really, this would be more akin to us today, just in our jobs. Think vocation. But in that context, he was speaking to a specific group of people who would have been uh, in this position of being a bondservant. He says, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So he's talking to these bondservants, these workers, about how they do what they do, right? He's talking to them about how they live out their vocation because it matters. In fact, where you will probably encounter the most or highest number of non-believers is where you work, where you, where you play, where you, where you get out into the world. And so it's critical for us to recognize that how we do all of those things matters. And if you go pilfering, does anybody know what pilfering is, by the way? If you go trying to keep a little for yourself and, and doing shoddy work and cutting corners and, it, and extorting and all this kind of stuff and showing favoritism, that's the pilfering of the master's goods, by the way. And what you do is you teach them that Christianity doesn't matter at all. That's what the world does. That's what a good Cretan does. Remember, a Cretan is a liar. They're a lazy beast, an evil glutton. Evil beast, lazy glutton. So don't work like a Cretan. Don't live like a Cretan. So how does how you pursue your job impact your witness in this world? What's well, where your witness is on grandest display? Let me just tell you. And people figure it out. They find out you're a Christian. They can tell. Even when you try like Peter to cuss so they don't think you're a Galilean. They figure it out because it doesn't even sound right coming out of you. And they know, and they begin to judge based on how you do what you do. Carl F.H. Henry says this, and I think I've used this quote before when we talked about vocation, but listen to this and let it weigh on you. According to the scriptural perspective, work becomes a way station of spiritual witness and service, a daily traveled bridge between theology and social ethics. In other words, work for the believer is a sacred stewardship. And in fulfilling his job, he will either accredit or violate the Christian witness. You've been given in your vocation, whether you like your job or not, it's not what's consequential. What's consequential is you've been given a sacred stewardship. Now steward it well for the life of the world and the glory of God. Amen? So what do we learn from Titus 2, 1 through 10? Three things. One, how we live out sound doctrine affects our witness and opportunities for discipleship, both young and old, both male and female. 
Two, the pastor who teaches sound doctrine must live it out for the sake of the glory of God, lest that witness be destroyed and no one take it serious. And if you ever catch me lacking in integrity or not living in accord, if you love me or even if you don't like me, you ought to come tell me anyway. Because it's more is at stake than my ego and my future and my job. Remember what he said, this affects us. Third, work is a critical vehicle for our witness in the world. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes and Brian Chapel say. They say, all true believers are expected to have their faith reflected in their conduct and to have their conduct affirm their faith. Now, how do you do that? You're not going to do it perfect. You do that in the power of the Spirit and the finished work of Christ via the means of grace, knowing knowing that between the now and the not yet, you'll never get it perfect. But yet, there's still much that the Lord does with our offering. There's still much that we get to participate in that is eternal and will be beautiful. So for the life of the world, live out sound doctrine, recognizing perfection is just not possible, so don't wear yourselves out. And if you are struggling with that, if you have in any way, shape, or form heard me say, hey, if you don't do this, and if you don't do this perfect, then you're out. Come talk to me, because that's not what I'm saying. Come talk to one of our elders, because they'll tell you that's not what's being said. This is not meant to be a burden on you. It's meant to be a, something you get to do so that you can see the Lord at work in this world, so your faith would be strengthened, so the Lord would be glorified, so the family would get bigger. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you include us in the story. Thank you that you give us gifts and talents and abilities and influence and spheres of influence and places that we get to live this out. God, thank you for all of the places that you take us and all of the different turns that our story takes for your glory. Thank you for the gifts that you have given and the fruit that you have borne from our efforts, even stumbling and fumbling as they may be. Thank you that perfection has been dealt with in Christ. We don't have to strain to be perfect. We don't strain under the burden of what we have to do. We are released to get to do things in freedom and union with Christ. Let us see it for the beautiful adventure that it truly is between the now and the not yet so that we could take great joy in your glory and the family getting bigger. Help us to do what we do in the life of the church, recognizing that it truly is for the life of the world. In Christ's name, amen.